hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with author, musician and comedian, it's Mitch Ben. So, hey, Mitch, how are you? Hello, Paula. I'm okay. I'm sitting in my car in Great Yarmouth. Um, <laughs> so Very glamorous. Make about what you will. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I want to have a look at the seafront and... Um, if you're not going to eat chips and go on roller coasters, there's not a lot for you at the seafront. I'm not reading <laughs> chips or roller coasters at the moment. <laughs> Certainly not together. Yeah. So I moved inland a bit and parked up in the market square, which is where I am, because I am between gigs uh, in this nice. neck of the wood. Very good. Uh, I was in Beckles last night, and tonight I'm somewhere called Chedgrave, where I've never been. I'm just looking forward to it. Um, it's rather fun, because these are the first gigs I've done all year. Uh, I was touring right up until April. And that tour basically started straight after Edinburgh last year and only finished about six weeks ago. And now I'm desperately trying to write this year's Edinburgh show because, of course, that starts in less than two months, which yeah. is terrifying. Scary. I, I mean, seriously, the last time I looked, it was February. I'm not having it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, what, one, one thing is, is that when, during lockdown, obviously kind of all gigs went away for, uh, yeah. well, on and off for the best part of, like, about 18 months. And, and I realized to my surprise, that I was kind of surviving without them because I've got various... I, I write a newspaper column. I was doing a lot of online stuff for my, for my Patreon people and everything. Yeah. And, um, and and I see also I had a little modicum of success right at the beginning of lockdown, you know, with all due sense of irony. As the pandemic was kicking off, I had a viral hit with a song called uh, Fuck All. Because... Um, <laughs> Well, it, what it was, it just occurred to me, I thought, this is so bizarre, because I don't even remember lockdown to begin with. It's all a bit ramshackle. Couldn't get people to take it seriously. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, this, this, this is just weird, because, like, this is really the first time since the Second World War that the British people have been called upon collectively to do anything. <laughs> and the thing they're asking us to do, the thing they're asking us to do is nothing. And apparently we can't even get our shit together to do that. Can't even do that, yeah. So so I wrote this song called Fuck All, um, (laughs) as in sort of a a stirring call to inaction, you know. Um, And and it went berserk. I mean, I've had things sort of, you know, pick up a bit of a head of steam on the internet before, but this one went, I I ended up getting like a two-page article in the Mail Online about me and this (laughs) song, which raises the fascinating prospect of the readership of the mail online finding yeah. my YouTube page and finding out everything else I'm insane. But anyway, that, that bumped up my Patreon numbers to the point where I actually kind of survived okay throughout yeah. lockdown. I mean, pure luck. I mean, I'm not, you know, trying to blow smoke up my own ass. This was pure luck on my part. It wasn't anything, it wasn't anything to do with judgment or foresight, you know. And, and, and I was genuinely worried about a lot of my comedy pals who, you know, I, mm. I know if, if you're entirely dependent upon live stuff, then that's yeah. just, it just, you know, I think you were signing on. I don't know what else you could do, you know. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I think people were, you know. Yeah, um, oh, no, it changed a lot of the so, way a lot of people you know, worked, didn't it, lockdown? It did, it did. Well, and then, but then when it when it all came back, I'm thinking, do I really want to go back to gigging four or five yeah. days a week? Um, so, I guess, apart from anything else, I'm getting so bleeding old. I mean, it's like <laughs> really no. So by the time I'm, I'm 53 years old, and I look every damn minute of it, you know, um, and 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 it's it's like when you've got to this age in circuit comedy, generally by the time you're my age, you've either gotten famous or given up. 
you know, and I've somehow managed to avoid doing either of those things. And, and, and as such, I'd be turning up the comedy gigs and I'm thinking to myself, I, not only am I the oldest person on, I think I'm the oldest person on by a clear 20 years. And um, <laughs> actually in the middle of lockdown, I was doing a, an, an online gig. I mean, I, I was doing my own live streams as well and I've kept those up. Yeah, yeah. Actually, even, out, even after lockdown ended, I'm doing a monthly live stream for my Patreon supporters, which is great. I love doing those. But I, uh, I, I, I was doing an online club gig. I think it was for the East Dulwich guys. And, um, and, and, and in the middle of it, like one of the guys, one of the acts on before me was this young guy is, is literally open with, so anyway, I've just turned 30, so you might as well just shoot me now. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, Christ, you know. So it's, it's starting to get a bit conspicuous, you know. So I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still gigging. I'm still touring. I'm still doing festivals as I'm putting everything yeah. together. I've just finished the tour. Um, but it occurred to me last night in this tiny little pub gig in Beckles, I had the time of my life. It was great. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I shouldn't neglect this entirely. You know, just just do the ones I really want to do, but I should yeah. not because I, I also I need to remember that whatever else I've got in comedy, I got from being good at that exactly. in the nineties. You know, including all that time I spent on the radio, it all came back to yeah. Yeah. being able to rock up in a pub in front of a room full of total bloody strangers, <laughs> unleash the guitar, and make give everybody a good time for twenty minutes. You know. And it's an important discipline. You shouldn't lose it because Indeed. it's not the same as touring under your foot. I mean, they, they, they are, yeah, technically they're very different things. And this is something that actually took me a few years to figure out back in the early days, you know, in mm. the 90s when I was starting out. I was still doing club comics, but I was also doing Edinburgh, um, you know, or, or, or I was also doing Edinburgh, but I was doing club gigs all year round. And sometimes, you know, you go to Edinburgh, you write your whole new hour and it goes really well. Then you come back to London or wherever feeling like Billy Big Bollocks because you've written a whole new hour. <laughs> Check me out with my whole new yeah, hour. Yeah. That's how, that's how, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's how diligent and hardworking I am. Uh, and then you, you think, right, well, I'll just gonna hit them with, you know, 20, my favorite 20 minutes of the new show. And it dies on its hole. You didn't write club stuff. You wrote <laughs> Edinburgh stuff and they're very different. You know, they don't really translate from one environment to the other. You know, club stuff and Edinburgh stuff are very different kinds of material. You know, and, and when you're doing festivals or when you're touring or something, this is an audience that specifically come to see you. And yeah, yeah. you have a reasonable expectation that they're at least slightly familiar with what you do and kind of know what to expect. You know, whereas when you're doing a club gig, and I'm fairly sure last night, nobody in there had the first bloody clue who I was, you know, and... and 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 it's like, okay, now I've got to win you guys over. I've literally got seconds after I start. You know, the MC can say all the great things about you that he wants, but ultimately it's still up to you when your boots hit that stage. So that, well, I've got literally about four seconds to convince these guys that I'm the real thing. You know? <laughs> um and, and no, you do, you do. No, you know, but you, with you, age you comes experience. At, do you know what I mean? We, you know. Yeah, but by the same token, they could look at you and think, well, he's obviously been going for 30 years and I've still never bleeding heard of him, so how good can he be? <laughs> you see what I mean? Oh, you can see how that could come. break down in yourself. No, 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 I'm just trying to put myself in the point of view of an audience member who sees this, you know, this this angry Santa Claus getting up on stage <laughs> and thinking, well, either this 
either I'm witnessing this guy's midlife disintegration, you know, or he's patently been going for 30 years and yet has still <laughs> never been on, you know, live at the Apollo. So evidently, so, he, so how bloody good can he possibly be? So you can see, uh, yeah, you're quite right. You might, on the other one, somebody might think, well, this guy's obviously been making a living this for 30 years, so he's obviously got the hang of it by now. But then, you know, you can see how that could come both ways. You know, it's, it's, you've got to be realistic about these things. I mean, you I do have to, you've always got to be realistic. I, know, but... I mean, there are times, you know, when I'm up in Edinburgh and I'll see posters for comedians who are great friends of mine. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and I'll think to myself, oh, I'll think to myself, all right, you're a good mate. I like what you do. It's great when I find myself on the same bill as you. I'll make a point of getting there early so I can see your stuff because I think you're great and I love what you do. Not sure I want to sit through half an hour of it. <laughs> Nothing will possess me to spend 20 quid to sit through an hour of it. I'm not sure you've thought this through. You know what I mean? Um, you know, and, and you, you do need to be really, you know, I mean, that's a question you have to ask yourself no, every you time mean. you go out. Particularly if you're doing Edinburgh, particularly if you're touring, you've got to ask yourself in fairly brutal terms, why the hell is anybody going to come and see this? You know, when you think of all, particularly Edinburgh, when you think of all the other things that could be going to go and see, all the alternatives, yeah, why yeah. the hell are they going to come and see me? And you have to operate on that level. You have to assume you know, sort of complete disinterest and then try and run. Even if there is, you know, I mean, I've got a bit of a following these days. I want to say yeah. these days. I've had a yeah. bit of a following for a long time. If anything, the trick now is maintaining what following I've got now that I don't have the constant, you know, trickle of media exposure that I used to. You know, uh, the, <laughs> the trick now is, is maintaining, you know, the, the, the following that I've got. Yeah, there's ways of doing it, you know, there's ways of doing it. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I don't yeah. have I don't have fly by nights on this podcast, Mitch. Do you know what I mean? You're <laughs> you're up there, so I I had to have you on the podcast. You know, it's the way things been go. around or long enough. Yes, indeed, yes. indeed. Yes, so I usually yes. I usually like to start off by talking a little bit about childhood. It's something we don't really know too oh, much hello. about comedians yeah. about their backgrounds and things. Yeah. So you were born in Liverpool. So what was what was young Mitch was. like growing up in? What was it like growing up in Liverpool? <laughs> Uh, growing up in Liverpool in the 70s was quite the thing. Yeah. Because, and then particularly the 80s. Uh, the, in the 70s, the main thing you got growing up in video, and, and this, again, has informed a lot of my work, and I've talked about this in at least two of my shows and spun it off in different directions both mm. times, is how my generation, the, the Gen Zs, because I'm another no, Gen Xs, I'm bang in the middle of Gen X, was born in 1970. Um, and my, my generation were never allowed for a minute growing up to forgive ourselves for just missing the sixties, right? <laughs> That's all we ever heard about. Yes, oh man, yeah, you should have been there for the sixties, man. Oh, you should have been there for the sixties, man. You should have been there for the sixties. It's all we ever bloody heard about was the sixties growing up. And you know, this manifests itself in shit like Britpop. You know, when my generation in our 20s and it was our turn to do something fresh and radical, we just did this rather tedious, tepid 60s knockoff, you know. But I think you felt that in Liverpool probably more than anywhere, that that pain of just missing the 60s. Because it's sort of the one time that, you know, Liverpool looked like the place to be and we'd all just missed it. And then, of course, from Liverpool being sort of, I don't know, a bit sort of wounded and bruised in the 70s, to then just getting the shit kicked out of it in the 80s. You know, <laughs> it, it was it was kind of a, an alarming place to be. It was in many respects. Yeah. And um, it, it's, it, I, I hasten to add, it's in much better nick now. Uh, because, well, actually, I haven't been back to Liverpool much of the last 12 months because my mum died at the beginning of last year. So I was to and from Liverpool for the whole of, the first half of last year, basically, you know, 
trying mm. to put all her affairs mm. in order, which is yeah. a fairly grim task, as you yeah. can imagine. Yeah. And having done that, I'm not in any particular mood to go back there. No, just because no. for the first, well, the thing is, we've sold the house now. Me and my sister sold the house. So for the first time in my life, I've got no direct connection to Liverpool. Mm. I don't have a bedroom in Liverpool, ever. Yeah. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I don't have a house in Liverpool. I don't have a room in Liverpool. I've got nowhere to mm. stay. So I can go back there. And in fact, I think I am going back there after the summer. I've got a gig booked in for after the summer. I think I'm doing a... Uh, is it another Doctor Who convention? I played. I like to. I love doing Doctor Who conventions. Anyway, I've got another one of those coming up in in in, in Liverpool uh, after the summer. But it's going to be very weird because I'm going to be in a hotel or an Airbnb or yeah. in somebody's spare room, you know. And and that is going to be a very weird feeling being back in Liverpool but visiting. Yeah. You know, because previous to that, previous to this, but going to Liverpool has to one degree or another been going home. And it's not going to be going home anymore. It's going to be visiting like every other town in the country, you know. So I'm kind of stealing myself to that, you know. And anyway, I uh, I left. I went up to Edinburgh uh, to go to university when I was 18. Yeah. And again, that's not really a reflection on Liverpool. I was going to leave home anyway. I think yeah. it's a good time to leave home. Uh, and I deliberately went far enough away that I couldn't be back every weekend with a bag of laundry. That was the plan. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I wanted to go an inconvenient distance away from Liverpool. <laughs> and then I went to Edinburgh and just absolutely fell in love with the damn place. And I lived there for eight years. I stayed on after my degree and still kind of wondering why I left, if I'm honest. Uh, Ian Bloody Rankin keeps tormenting me with photos <laughs> of it on, on Twitter. And I'm like, I used to live there. The fuck was I thinking? But, you know, uh, but having said that, I, I, I owe Rank, Ian Rankin a favour, a couple of favours, actually, because the uh, um, first time I met him, he came to see my Beatles show in Edinburgh in 2013, because mm -hmm. I did, the, the most Liverpool-centric thing I've ever done is I did a whole show about the Beatles, because growing up in Liverpool in the 70s, you're literally wading through the debris of Beatlemania, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. And also, I also my parents knew him, my mum knew him really rather well. Oh, um, really? She was a she was a school with uh, primary school with Ringo. She was briefly dating one of the other quarry men in the very early days of the you know yeah. So my mom knew him quite. She got hit on by John Lennon. Told her to fuck off. Um, you know you know my mom knew them really rather well. Um, and so I grew up kind of in the shadow of of, of Beatleness. You know, so I I wrote a show about. You know, my own connection to Beatles and the sort of the Beatles legacy in culture in general called Mitch Ben is the 37th Beatle. Because it was about <laughs> all the people, all the people you'd ever heard called the fifth Beatle. There's literally dozens <laughs> yes. of them, you know. So I try to arrange them all in order of Beatle and try and figure out where I fit in and decided I was 37. Um, so, yeah, Mitch Ben is the 37th Beatle. Was, was, was that show. And um, I obviously you mentioned Stu Sutcliffe, who was their original bass player who fell in love with the, when they were in Hamburg, fell in love with a German girl, stayed on in Hamburg, and then dropped dead at the age mm. of 22 from a brain hemorrhage. So it's tragic little story, Stu, about which a rather good movie called Backbeat was made back in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, probably the best best Beatles biopic movie um, was The Stu Story. Uh, and anyway, Ian Rankin came to see this, and at the end of the show in the merch queue says, you remember Stu was actually born in Edinburgh? I went, you're quite right. I did know that. I'd forgotten it. <laughs> Stu was born in Edinburgh and only moved down to Liverpool when he was about four years old. And I actually incorporated that into the show because I said, you know, this was pointed out to me by Ian Rankin. And if you're going to get pulled up on a point of information concerning Edinburgh, yeah. it really should be by Ian Rankin. He's the one. Shouldn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. if I ever say anything stupid about Miami, I want Carl Hyerson in the room <laughs> to straighten me out, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah. And then, and then a couple of years later, he let me stay at his shed, which 
which is right. <laughs> um, so I spent the whole of the uh, yeah, he's, he had he had like a let's say shed. It's more like a barn in his garden, uh, which I think he had fitted out for his son to live in, like a sort of little flat. And his son was away for the summer, so I'd managed to bags it for the for, for oh, that wow. festival. So that was rather good. Uh, yeah, it was rather good. Yeah, and yeah. certainly made it fun. That's the other thing about Edinburgh, of course, is is uh, last year. Because my mum had just died, mm. I, I rather splashed out a bit of my accommodation, and it meant I only just broke even. Um, so this year, um, I'm, I'm this year I'm on my mate's couch. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be on my mate. I'm going to be on my mate Mark's couch for the whole of August. And sorry, it means you know, but it's, it's, I kind of indulged myself Why not? last year. But that is going to be interesting to see what happens because I know you know I, I seem to be. One of the few of my sort of immediate circle of comedy pals who's even bothering with Edinburgh this year, yeah, just because yeah. it is getting not just prohibitively expensive, but actually mathematically un- unworkably expensive. Mm. You know, um, and this is I, I don't honestly know what they're going to have to do about this, but they are going to have to do something if they want the festival still to be there. Yeah. Because a lot of the things which have made accommodation much harder are changes to the law in Edinburgh to make things better for people in Edinburgh who live in rented accommodation. So you mm. can't really get too up on your high horse about that. But by the same token, something which, you know, Edinburgh District Council and Lothian Regional Council and indeed the Fringe Office have to bear in mind is you're very, very proud of this festival that you've got, and rightly so, but always remember, it's not you that puts the festival on. You don't put this festival on. You print a brochure and you sell tickets. That's what you do. But you don't put the festival, and, you know, vital function that is, by all means, but you don't put, the festival is put on for you by thousands of performers who rock up every year at their own time and at their own expense and entirely at their own risk and put the show on for you. And if literally all of them one year decide it's just not worth the financial outlay and the impossibility of even breaking even, Mm. then you haven't got a festival. You know, you haven't got one. You, you, you know, it's, it's, you can set aside as much of August as you want. But if we don't turn up, it's not happening. And moreover, if, if the punters don't turn up, even if we turn up, we don't go, we don't have an audience. And so I'm not entirely sure what they do about that. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, also the other thing is, you know, because I mean, it used to be in the old cliche about Edinburgh was that, you know, people who owned flats in Edinburgh, even if lived in them themselves, they weren't like the landlord. They were just mm. a resident. You know, the, the plan would always be to essentially, let it out for August and have, you know, Bezarabian mime troops sleeping on the uh, living room floor <laughs> like sardines, you know. Charge them 12 grand for the month and then I just nap off on holiday and still come out oh. about eight grand up, you know. Uh, but the trouble with that is what it means is what you used to get is there are little short-term letting agencies all over Edinburgh who mm. exist for this primary purpose. Yeah, yeah. For letting out residential flats to punters and performers over the summer. But what the uh, what the, the landlords and the residents are doing now, because it's easier, is they're cutting those guys out of the equation and just sticking it all up at Airbnb for 200 quid a night. It's ridiculous, um, isn't it? it which make sense. means if you've got to be... Well it, well, it makes sense to them. Well, yeah, obviously. The from a <laughs> and the thing is, I guess it also makes sense if you're only coming up for a few days to see a bunch of shows. But if you're performing, if you've got to be up for the whole of August, then you're yeah. six grand down before you've even turned up. You Easy. know, and, and so that's, you know, that's, that's, and, and, and what they do about this, I don't honestly know. I mean, they're, you know, maybe build some kind of Olympic village out by the <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not kidding. You know, you could make I the should, whole thing definitely. branded if you had to. Yeah. You know, you may get one of the breweries to sponsor it or some bloody thing, you know. But, but 
You know, I mean, it's, it's, it is actually becoming a genuine issue. And the festival might not, I mean, it could genuinely go away. It could genuinely be all done and yeah. dusted in the next couple of years. If everybody, if, if, if the mathematics are just, because the thing is, I think we were starting to find ways around that because, you know, when I was coming up to uh, the fringe and everything, it became very much kind of the received wisdom hmm. that, you know, you will lose your shirt in Edinburgh. <laughs> There, you know, however well you, do, yeah. you will be, a, you know, you will lose eight grand minimum, minimum, you know, and that's in a good year. You, and so, and yeah. what happens then is two things happen. One, you get the rise of slightly shady promoters saying to young clueless comedians, well, if you're going to be eight grand down, you might as well just give me the eight grand up front and then I'll suck up everything. Oh you know what God. I mean? And, 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 you know, and then the other thing you get, of course, is that you get a whole generation of comedians who don't even bother to investigate ways of not losing eight grand. Yeah. And there are ways of not losing eight grand at Edinburgh. There really are. You know, people spend a hell of a lot of money on stuff that actually bigs you up and makes you look like the big I am, but doesn't do a bloody thing for your ticket sales. Um, and so I guess it depends on why you're there. I mm. mean, that actually is the point. Of, that actually is the premise of my show this year is the point. It's called The Point, and it's about broadly what the point and function of comedy is in the modern world. But it's at least partly about what am I doing here? Yeah. Why am I here? Because comedy doesn't serve any obvious purpose. For, the, the fringe, rather, doesn't serve any obvious purpose for somebody like me. If you're a newbie trying to establish yourself as a, you know, not just a club 20 minute guy, but somebody who could tour and somebody yeah. who, you know, yeah. maybe has got a bit of something going on, then it's a good platform for kind of announcing your presence to the industry if you wanted a big guns then you just rock up sell at the conference center three nights and go mm. over with a lot of money and and also if you are not a newbie but somebody who is regarded as this year's thing you know somebody's kind of this year's guy which yeah, i have yeah. never been thank heavens <laughs> but you know somebody who's like this year's hot ticket this year's my prospect then you go there basically in order to win awards and yeah. come back with the awards and then get your TV show, you know. But me, you know, old fart with a white beard has just been doing it for a long time. Why <laughs> am I there? You know, and that's that's a genuine question. So yeah. each part of it is answering that question. What am I doing here? You know, yeah. um, but I, I, you know, I've never lost money at Edinburgh and I refuse to lose money at Edinburgh. You know, um, I, I wouldn't do it if I thought I was going to lose money. You know, I, I, I love being up there and I have a good time. And it's the only time I get to see, because of course, if you're not on the circuit much, it's the only time you get to see any other comedian. Exactly. You know? uh, exactly. And, and, you know, you get to do a bit of hanging out, I suppose. Although I don't do that much of that as I used to because um, I'm getting a bit and also I've got to watch the voice um, everybody well here's the thing everybody blows their voice out in Edinburgh and they all think they're doing it on stage they're not they're doing it in the loft bar right <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing it late in life that's when people blow their voice out it's partying it's not performing <laughs> Because when you're performing, if you've got a modicum of stagecraft, then all your subconscious techniques for not blasting your larynx right out of your face, you know, they, they come into play and you start, you know, you start breathing from the diaphragm, you start yeah. projecting and all that, and you remember all that shit. But then you go out on the pistol five o'clock in the morning, you know, in a room with pumping music. And, of course, back in my day, a room full of pumping music that was also 80% cigarette smoke. Thank heavens <laughs> that's not the case anymore. And then you have conversations like this until five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, and then you wake up the next day going, "Oh my god, my voice is gone." Voice is gone. I yeah, been, I've been 
I've been performing too hard. No, you're daft. Why? You've been partying. That's going to So everybody blows a voice out of Edinburgh, and they all think they do it on stage, but they don't. They do it in the bars. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression, but that's... that's <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, as we said, you, you moved to Edinburgh. Yeah. You went to uni in Edinburgh. What yes. was the plan? What was the... What was there a... <laughs> was, was there a plan oh, you, for, for Edinburgh? You sweet summer child. I have, there's, there's never been a plan, and there still isn't. Um, I'm 53 years old and I still don't want to know what I want to do when I grow up. No, I kind of, I, oddly enough, I think this is actually fairly typical of my generation of comedians is that we didn't really, I know very few comedians from my generation who are pursuing their cherished boyhood ambition by yeah. being a comedian. Yeah, yeah. Most of us seem to drift into it while we were trying to do other things. Mm. Now, I think that's probably changed along with so many other things for subsequent generations. Because I think comedy, you know, when I started doing it in the 90s, it was big. You know, that's when people started talking about the new rock and roll. And that's yeah. when yeah. Rob and Dave played Wembley. And that's exactly. when, you know, and suddenly it started to become a bit hipper. And I think maybe then there were kids at school who have subsequently become comedians who were looking at these guys and thinking, that's what I want to do when I grow mm. up. But when I was a kid, there was, you know, it, it, I, I never really considered it, you know. I mean, so... I was doing sort of comedy adjacent things. You know? mm. I mean, I've mm. been in bands and I've done a hell of a lot of theatre. That was actually how I spent most of my time at Edinburgh Uni. Was, uh, my degree was supposedly in modern languages, but I was a theatre nerd and I spent my whole time at the Bedlam Theatre doing, doing, amongst other things, the improv show, which is still there, mm. fantastically. The Edinburgh Uni improv show, The Improverts, was begun by a bunch of mates of mine and I in mm. like 1989, 1990. And it's still going. And rather adorably, they fired me a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally standing in Bristow Square holding this flyer for the improvements, looking at it. And I said to, you know, I was in this before you were born. <laughs> literally, I was in this show before you were born, you know, um, so, yeah, I was doing a lot of sort of comedy adjacent things. But then the first time I ever did stand up was quite by accident in Montreal in the summer of 1991. I was three quarters of the way into my degree because I was doing modern languages at Edinburgh. And I've been living in Spain all year, um, working as an English teacher, playing in bands, putting on plays. You know, I've always done all that kind of shit. And then I had to spend, because I was Spanish and French, major Spanish, minor French. I had to spend the summer of 1991 somewhere francophonique so I could practice my French. And I'd done France previously. I didn't particularly want to do it again. Yeah. Now, the main mover in the introduction of improv to Edinburgh Uni was a guy called Toff Marshall. Hello, if you're out there, Toff. <laughs> uh, and he was a Canadian graduate student doing, I think, his... Masters in classics. He subsequently got his PhD. Subsequently got his PhD. Yeah. So he is now Doctor Toff Marshall. Oh. Um, and he, while he himself was from Vancouver, right over the other side, he went to university at McGill in mm -hmm. Montreal. And so that was so. A lot of his old improv nerd buddies then became semi-professional improv nerds and had a residency on a Tuesday night in a club in Montreal called the Comedy Works which I think is still there, although I've heard rumors to the contrary. I hope it's still there. Anyway, so he put me in touch with some of his improv nerds, and I stayed with some of them for a little while and then found a place my own. And I ended up staying in Montreal for the whole of the summer in 1991. Mm. And the first Tuesday I was in town, I went to the Comedy Works to see the improv. 
Because A, they're friends of a friend, and B, you know, that's the improv show. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of my best pals in Edinburgh improv was a guy called Neil Smith, who now writes the movie reviews for the Radio Times. Hello, Neil. <laughs> there. Now, Neil was from Tilbury in Essex. He was my one of my best mates in Edinburgh. And while I'd been in Spain all year, he got an exchange and had been at Penn State in Philadelphia all oh, year. Wow. Right? So we hadn't seen each other at this point for about 15, 16 months, right? Yeah, yeah. And as far as he knew, I was in Spain. <laughs> you know, the last time he spoke to me, because we were exchanging letters, because it was letters back then, kids. Yeah, oh, yes. You, no, know, you might, as well, might as well say, you know, I was sending him a raven um, <laughs> to, to, you know. Um, you know, um, but, you know, it was letters. We were exchanging letters. So the last he heard from me, I was still living in Spain. And anyway, I'm sitting there waiting for the improv to start, and in walks Neil Smith. And we're like, you know, pick our jaw bones up off the floor. What the fuck are you doing here? And, 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 you know, we have this, and it's just like he happened. What he'd done is he, because he, he had like about three months to last on his visa, mm. he'd been basically decided to see a bit of North America. So he was just wow. wandering around North America. Uh, and had rocked up, he'd come over the border and had rocked up in Montreal, had to look in whatever the listings magazine was called then, found there was an improv show, and I thought, might as well check out the improv, and runs <laughs> right into me. Um, you know, and so the MC then gets up and goes, so anybody here from out of town? Uh, yeah. And, you know, I stick the hand up, and I tell the story, and the story gets a round of applause, right? So at the end of the show, the MC says, do you do stand-up? And I go, no, I do improv. They go, oh, you ought to do stand-up, man, get back here on Monday. Because they wow. ran a completely open, open mic night on yeah. Monday, where basically if you got there by like half seven and put your name down, you're on. So I came up and I had my guitar with me. So I thought, right, I'm going to sing a bunch of songs that I'd written with a friend of mine for like a, a sketch show in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So I had a few, you know, sketch shows. So, so I came out and, and did this and it went absolutely gangbusters. And, and, I, and I ended up doing support slots in this comedy club. I was 21 years old, and they were spending the whole summer doing short spots, either opening for the improv guys or opening. Or, and one weekend, I opened for uh, Ray Romano. Oh, my God. <laughs> As in Everybody Loves Raymond, um, who himself, I think, had just done his first ever TV set. Oh. And so, yeah, now I'm 21 years old, opening for Ray Romano. And then I came back to Edinburgh to finish my degree, uh, sort of 91 to 92. I kind of forgot all about comedy for about three years. Because mm. I, I had to get my bloody degree finished. And yeah, B, yeah. also, back then, there was almost no year-round stand-up scene in Edinburgh. Um, in fact, there was no year-round stand-up scene in Edinburgh. It was really weird. Three weeks of the year carpeted with comedians the other weeks of the year nothing you know um yeah. there were no local comedy clubs in edinburgh and um so i kind of forgot all about it and then in 94 i was still living in edinburgh it was fringe time i didn't have a show i wasn't in a show mm. i thought i'm gonna go out my mind here so i just started wandering around back in those days a lot of venues would just have a real kind of you know, guerrilla cabaret from like yeah, midnight yeah. till two or something. And if you just turned up, you could just blag on and just, yeah, they'd pay you in beer. You know? <laughs> and so I just thought, right, 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 screw it. So I just started wandering around the venues and I ended up doing like two or three shows a night for the whole of that summer. Over the course of which I got talking to some established comedians, principally yeah. Earl Oakin, God bless you, Earl. I mean, he's still there. And Earl actually said to me, are you doing this full time? And I said, no. And he said, you should be. Mm. And I thought, well, I guess maybe I will then. And in 94, like a uh, comedy club opened in Edinburgh that ran for a little while. And then 95, I opened one myself with uh, my mate Ian Kendall. And we ran that for most of 95. And then in the summer of 95, I did my first gig in London, which was a 
an open mic competition at the old Cosmic Club yeah. in Fulham. And it was a two-round thing. So I won the round and I had to come back for the final. And in the final, right now, I'm going to praise this by, I need to be able to finish this anecdote. In the <laughs> final, I won and Johnny Vegas came second, right? <laughs> now... The reason I used to occasionally bring that up was as an ob- uh, well, the reason I would occasionally have brought that up. The only reason I've ever brought that up over the years was to illustrate to young comedians not to put their faith in competitions. Because <laughs> what I because what I meant by that was I won it. Vegas came second within yeah. eighteen months. He was one of the biggest comedians yeah. in the country. Yeah, you know, and I was still. I've basically been toiling at varying degrees of obscurity ever since so put not thy trust in competitions young comedian that's why i would occasionally bring that up but comedians being the gossipy little bitches that they are i'm fairly sure that at some point it got back to vegas that i go around bragging about the time i beat him in the competition and i don't and i never have and if he's listening i want to be able to know that I would never brag about that competition. I would only bring it up as a reason to explain. Because the competition suddenly became very important towards the end of the 90s, if you remember. Suddenly there was a bunch of them. There was like, see, you think you're funny at the festival. And then there was the the BBC one, which was the BBC Avalon one. And then they split in half. So there was the BBC one and the Avalon one. Mm. You know, and and, and a lot of... And and somehow this, this became perceived as kind of a bit of a route to stardom and they very very only very very rarely were yeah, yeah because they what they weren't was any kind of i mean they might have been if you got snapped up immediately by the tv the minute you'd won that could mm. kind of work mm. but what they didn't do is in any way prepare you to actually make a living on the circuit because in the comedy and those competitions you got five minutes maybe 10 minutes usually five in front of an audience that's not just paying attention they're actually scrutinizing what you do because they're trying to work out who's going to win yeah and that is no preparation for rocking up in a room full of piss people i have no idea who (laughs) are trying to hold their attention for 20 minutes it just doesn't prepare you for that so i remember thinking that the competitions assumed way too much importance at the end of the 90s so i may well that is probably when i made the mistake of trotting out the anecdote of let me tell you about the time that I came first and Johnny Vegas came second. And that I say was to illustrate the fact that the, no, fact, it's a good example. No, the fact that I won did fuck all for me. And the fact that he didn't made no bloody difference to his almost immediate ascent to stardom immediately thereafter, you know? So anyway, anyway, around about the same time uh, I got invited to do, they used to do like an open mic competition on the circus stage in Glastonbury. And if you won that, you got a crack on the main comedy stage. And I won it in 95 and got a crack on the main comedy stage. And then actually somebody didn't turn up. So I got a proper crack on the main comedy stage. And then I played Glastonbury every year for like 20 years. Yeah. Until they had a change of management, and I don't seem to be able to get back on anymore. But anyway, we'll see if that ever rectifies itself. But yeah, and, and so that kind of established me a bit. And then I moved down to London in 96, mm-hmm. because at the time, Scottish comedy was coming up, but it was still all fairly parochial. And I remember thinking, if, if I really want to make a go of this, I need to be where, where the action is. Yeah, you know, oh, so I moved yeah, down to yeah, London yeah. in 96. And then kind of became... After a few months, and I kind of became the cancellation king, you know, because that's when I got my first mobile phone, the beginning of 97, because <laughs> suddenly I thought, no, I need to, because what would happen is I'd never have any gigs in the diary on Monday morning, but right. I'd always end up gigging all weekend because yeah, people yeah. would bail. 
And word got around amongst kind of the lower and middle rank promoters that there's this guy, he's new in town, but he's been gigging his... No, seriously, this is how Yeah, he's new in town, but he's been gigging in Scotland for a couple of years, so he's not that, he's not that raw, you know, he yeah, knows what he's yeah. doing, he's got his shit together. And he's a big, loud bastard with a guitar, so you can close with him. And that's what they particularly loved about me, is that there's a big, loud bastard with a guitar, so you can stick him on at the end. And so I thought, oh, my God. So, so, yeah, I used to get a lot of last-minute stuff in that first year or so. And that was kind of, you know, me establishing myself down in London. And then I had a really good fringe in 98, really good solo show at a venue, a venue called The Southside, mm-hmm. um, which I think is still there, but I think it's called something else now. I had a really good fringe in 98, and one of the people who saw that was a guy called Alid Evans, who was the first producer of The Now Show. And so when the next year in the summer of 99, they it was the second season of The Now Show, they'd already had somebody else in doing the songs in Series 1. Yeah. And then this person was going to be absent from a bunch of shows in Series 2. So I was brought in essentially to stand in for them, mm. like three or four shows in Series 2. And then from Season 3 onwards, they just gave it to me. And so I was in The Now Show for 17 years, Long which in time, retrospect yeah. was too In retrospect, it was too long. I think now I look back at it, I should, probably should have left after about 10 because I think there are there may well be things that I missed out on because I was committed to doing yeah, the radio. Yeah, tied to something show. else. Tied to something else. So yeah. there may have been, you know, I've never been to Australia. Very much love to go to Australia. I've never been to Australia. And I know that there were a couple of times when that was at least partly due to the fact that I had a series of the Now Show wiping Doing out their things. festival season. Yeah. So you just couldn't go. And also, you do use up a hell of a lot of ideas doing something like that week in, week out for years on end. Uh, use up a lot of musical and comedy ideas for songs that maybe got played twice and then forgotten about. So in while I do, and, and you know, I miss recording the shows because they were great fun. The recording days, you know, mm-hmm. I, so I miss doing the show. I'm not in any way bitter at not being on the show anymore because I'm, you know, like I say, if anything, I'm freer to do more things yeah, now. Yeah, no, it was what it was. Yeah. I'm actually, you know, it was what it was, but, yeah. but, um, you know, and I, I, I miss the recording days, you know, they were, they, those were good fun times, but I probably was there too long. I probably should have packed it in after about 10 years, I think. You know, because yeah, that was the whole of my thing. Hindsight well, I mean, hindsight's everything. You know, when I started, I was 29, and by the time I left, I was 46. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. the whole. That's like the whole of the prime of your life. Your gone. prime. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> all of my 30s and most of my 40s. Yeah, are, yeah. You know, and, and and I probably should have packed it in. You know, around 2010, sometime like that. But you know, I didn't. I kept going, and you can't regret these things too. But you know, oh, it's, no. it's, it was a great, it was a lovely, fun show. I, I really enjoyed doing it. That, if anything, is probably what kept me going as much as anything else. But also, it was handy. In actual fact, you know, you can't knock the, and this is why people are putting on their Edinburgh shows. You know, whatever tiny TV credit they've got, because it Use is a it. great <laughs> legitimizer to be able to say, as seen on. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and for years I could have, you know, a star of Radio Force than our show. But I, I think my posters might even still say that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's like seven years since I've been on it. I think my, yeah, well, it's still going, it's still yeah. going, you know, it's like seven years since I left and it's still going. I always thought it was in a bit of an odd situation because I thought, 
Certainly by the time I left, I remember thinking this show feels a bit kind of vulnerable because it's neither anything remotely new or fresh anymore, you know, yeah. because it's, you know, well over 20 years old now. But also I often wondered if it ever quite achieved the kind of national treasure status of stuff like, sorry, I haven't having a clue in the news quiz, yeah. you know, because yeah. yeah. those are proper national treasures. Anybody ever trying to cancel those, there will be uproar, you know, <laughs> and the news quiz, you know, survives because of its limitless capacity to reinvent itself. Yeah. You know, um, and, and, and every time they get a new host, they bring in sort of a whole new complexion to yeah. the show. You know? So yeah. it's, it's kind of limitlessly renewable in that respect the now show is probably less amenable to that you know but i often felt that you know i think we've but then again falling between two stools is is a, a an art i've mastered over the years um <laughs> yeah, you yeah. show you show me two you show me two stools and i will laugh you can bolt <laughs> the stools together and i will still fall between them you know? <laughs> but i mean how has the musical music thing how did that get intertwined with the comedy was that just a natural um, fit was that a natural thing? Yeah, it just kind of, to be honest, it never really occurred to me not to, you know. Yeah, um, it was a natural thing. It never, because it's a, th you know, because I mean, like I say, when I was putting my first ever stand-up set together, I cobbled it together from songs I'd written for a sketch show back in Edinburgh. And it went over gangbusters. And I do know, you know, there are lots of comedians who are great musicians in their spare time and, you know, and never incorporated in the act, and that's great. Hmm. I do also know that there have been a lot of comedians who started off doing music and then gotten all self-conscious about it and cast it aside, you know. Are you self-taught on the guitar? I mean, was that was that a whole? No, well, yeah, I had mates at school who played better than me, and that's often a good way of learning guitar. Is to have a mate who plays better than you. Mm. Um, and so there was a little sort of guitar playing fraternity at my school back in the eighties. They're all metalheads, you know, and uh, <laughs> they, they they show me how to play guitar. One of them is actually probably of my old school days. Is the guy I'm still in most constant contact with via Twitter and Facebook, but he lives in North Carolina now. Right. And he's still got the hair, uh, and he's still a full-time hard rock guitarist. <laughs> his name's Bill Murray. Hello, Bill. Nothing to do with Ghostbusters. Um, or indeed the guy was in, um, whatever soap opera that guy was in. Anyway, yeah, so Billy Murray is like, I'm still in fairly constant touch, and he was one of the guys who taught me to play guitar. And also, I grew up in a house full of guitars, uh, because my folks used to play, my mum and dad used to play guitar in like folk clubs in the 60s. Although, weirdly, I didn't actually start playing them until I was about 14, 15 years old. Yeah. I did music at school. I had, the, I had the kind of, you know, inevitable four or five years of piano lessons when I was little. Uh, and I can still sort of find my way around the piano. I can play kind of Beatles piano, you know, sort of chords of the right hand, bass of the left hand. That's it. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I can't really get much independence of the car, but I can compose on the piano. I'll occasionally write something on the piano. Mm. Uh, and then when I was 11, my primary school acquired a double bass from somewhere. And I was the tallest kid in the school. So they just went, <laughs> you, huge boy, come here and play this. And so I ended up playing double bass in school orchestras for most of my teens, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah. So I can only really sight read in bass clef, that's odd. But yeah, then I got into playing guitar when I was about 15, 16 years old. So when I started doing the comedy, it just kind of never really occurred to me not to. You know? mm. but as I was saying, the thing about being a musical comedian is this, and I know why some people get self-conscious, because I said there have been acts who started off doing musical comedy and then getting all self-conscious about it and decided, oh, it's cheaper to gimmick. I must cast it aside, you know? Yeah, yeah. Part of the thing is, one of the things is, and I, I think, I hope I'm through and out the other side of this now, but there is definitely a feeling when you're a musical comedian that you don't get a lot of respect from the other comedians yeah. if you're a musical act, right? And I think I know why this is. I think it's because you can 
play an absolute blinder, as in standing ovations, call back for encores, yeah, all that, yeah. as a really mediocre musical <laughs> comedian, which you can't as a mediocre stand-up. If you yeah. want to get standing O's and bought drinks and, you know, be sexually propositioned all night <laughs> and all over the mic, you've <laughs> got to be pretty bloody good. But I will grant it is entirely possible to rock up with a guitar Take to the stage when they're just pissed enough for a sing song, get a bunch of rude words to the right of the tune of Wild Thing, and you are fucking home and dry, right? <laughs> I grant you that that is possible. But what the, the flip side of that is that if you are a musical comedian who's trying to do something maybe a bit more considered, maybe a bit more, you know, something with a bit more substance to it, mm. you don't necessarily get credited for that. It's just, well, it's easy for him. He's got a guitar. It's just yeah, like, yeah, well, it's yeah. not always easy. No, it depends what you do with it. You know what I mean? The kind of stuff I do is not a, a sure thing. Mm. You know, because one of the things I stopped doing very early on, when I was when I started in the, you know, my, in my sort of early 20s, is I would occasionally, you know, write, write funny words to pop hits. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know there are a lot of guitar playing comedians, and that's basically all they do. And... I started off doing a bit of that, but then realized very early on that that's a dead end mm. because you end up with an act that you don't own. You end up yeah. entirely dependent upon material that you don't actually have the rights to. Yeah, yeah. Do you see what I mean? So the, the, now the thing is because you're not supposed to change the words to other people's songs. It is technically illegal. <laughs> Wherever you're doing it, it is technically illegal. Now, there is traditionally a blind eye turned towards that kind of thing in a cabaret setting. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm not aware of anybody getting into trouble for writing rude words to pop tunes in a cabaret setting. But if you wanted to do it in any more, you know, if you wanted to do it on the TV or if you wanted mm. to put it on a record, yeah, then yeah. you've got to get permission from the publishers, yeah, yeah, which is a bloody nightmare. And you end up not making any money. And right now, those of you out there thinking about Weird Al Yankovic and the Baron Knights, they did used to get permission for the publishers. Mm. You know, they actually there are, you know, they, they, they actually have both those acts. I know have a little back catalogue of unreleased stuff that they never got permission to release, you know. So, you know, you do have to get the permission for the publishers if you're yeah. going to write funny words to a Michael Jackson song. <laughs> you know, and, and if yeah, and if you're laying into them, as occasionally my stuff might, well, you know, yeah. then they're not necessarily going to grant you the publishers. Right? So, so, so I realised quite early on, I need to write the tunes as well. I need to write wholly original songs. And so that's what I've been doing, you know, since about 1996. Is, is writing the tunes and the words. Uh, and and that is certainly in a comedy club setting is by no means a sure thing because they don't mm. necessarily, they don't recognize the tune. So there's not that immediate lap of recognition yeah. that you yeah. get when you write funny words. And also sometimes you don't even find out what the joke is until I get to the chorus. And that's plenty of time to lose a rowdy crowd. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's more than enough time to lose an audience. You know, you're pretty prolific. Oh, God. Well, I mean, the thing is the thing. I think I've been doing this as long enough now for people to get that, you know, that the, it's what I do is not hacky. You know, I think I think I've been around long enough for people to, to understand that. There's, yeah, you know, that, exactly. That, yeah, you can do completely hack musical comedy, but that's not what I do. You know, and I think most people get that now. I think I've got the respect now of everybody I'm ever likely to get it from. 
And I think I've now got the respect of everybody I really want it from. <laughs> it's not cheating. That's the other thing. They call exactly. it the, you know, the, the six-string exactly. six cheating machine. And it's not cheating. And I'll tell you right now where it's not cheating. It's because this is not a competition. Yeah. It's not a competition. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not in competition with anybody except, you there's know. There's no point, is there? There's, there's no point. There's absolutely no, no point to it. There's, you know, laughter's not a finite resource. Every laugh you get is not a laugh that somebody else doesn't. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's not it's not a finite resource. There's enough laughter to go around for everybody. Exactly. Worry about your own shit. Exactly. You know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, radio, I suppose, is a very natural avenue for someone like yourself doing what you do. Yeah. Radio <laughs> okay. must have yeah. felt a very natural. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was good, and I've always been a massive fan of radio comedy. You know, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of radio comedy. I mean, mm. you know, and, and both the classic stuff and the contemporary stuff, because you know, obviously. Uh, my dad was a big comedy fan, so, you know, he introduced me to stuff like The Goons and Round the Horn yeah, when I was yeah. a kid. But then when I was a teenager, there was lots of great stuff on Radio 4, like Radioactive. I loved Radioactive. Mm. I've worked with Phil Pope a bunch of times, and I actually said to him, by the way, I totally lifted your approach to doing pop parodies. And he says, yes, it's not gone unnoticed. Because um, I, I, I love the way that the, the pop parodies uh, for Radioactive, which eventually a lot of them got released as the Heebie-Jeebies albums. Yes. Um, which were fucking amazing. I loved what they would do, which is essentially, you know, boil and act down to its component parts and then reassemble them in a new yeah. shape. So you end up with... You know, you end up with the Simon and Garfunkel song that you've never heard before. <laughs> or you end up with, you know, a Duran Duran song that you've never heard before. You yeah. know? And, so, and so that's absolutely been my approach to this, is to try and identify the component parts of somebody's sound and then reassemble them in a new way. And I, I love doing that. I find it just an endlessly fascinating process. So, yeah, I loved Radioactive. There was also a thing called The Wow Show, mm-hmm. W-O-W, um, which was a weird kind of almost retro goonsy thing in the that they were playlets, you know, they weren't sketches, they all had a narrative. And that was uh, Big Steve Frost and Mark Arden and Mark Elliott and Lee Corns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the, the ensemble on that. And then you had, uh, so the, and, uh, yeah, and then you had like Son of Cliche, which is the sketch that Grant and Naylor wrote, which essentially was the birthplace of Red Dwarf, you know. You had um, all kinds of things. So there was a lot of great radio comedy in the 80s. So I was, I kind of grew up listening to that. So yeah, it was a natural kind of slide across to me to, to find myself doing radio comedy because it was stuff that, you know, I'd always been a massive fan of. Um, and so yeah, I, I was overjoyed to find mm. myself part of that world. Bit of osmosis, you know. I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's just nice. It's just nice to find yourself, you know, following it, you know, literally following some of your heroes' footsteps. It's, it's yeah. always good fun. So it's yeah. a nice place to be. Yeah, I mean, you gigged all over the world, you know, Singapore, South Africa. I have. Never been to Australia. Very much yeah. like to go to There's Australia. There's still time, Mitch. I, I, there I, is still time. I, still time. I know. I've never been. They like their musical comedy down there. I think they, they do. They, they, you know, they're, they're, yeah, so. they really anyway, do. Do I think what? I do you think that, do you find that comedy travels well? Or is it just a load of expats? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, well, I mean, I did this comedy store in Mumbai when mm. it was quite new. Uh, and that was largely uh, locals. Right. That yeah. was oh, wow. largely, yeah, that was largely locals. Um, and, you know, and then I, I played Hong Kong many, many years ago. But, of course, in Hong Kong in the 90s, who counted as an expat was a rather nebulous country. <laughs> you know I mean, because there were there were people in Hong Kong who would probably regard themselves as British who'd lived on Hong Kong all their lives. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So, you know, who's who's an expat and who's exactly. just local but, you know, uh, ethnically British is a very, very, you know, I think 
by and large, as long as people get your references, you're probably okay. I think there are different comic traditions in different places. So, uh, but then that's also true of like, you know, different sort of regions and demographics within Britain. Mm. You know, you will sometimes find yourself, sometimes find yourself playing a crowd and you think, this lot really have got a very, very old school comic sensibility. And as far as they're concerned, jokes begin two blokes walk into a pub. And anything that doesn't begin two blokes. No, seriously, you think anything that doesn't no, begin with two blokes yeah. walk into a pub, they're, they're trying to work out where the jokes go. So you get that even within Britain, you can get, you know, very different sort of comedic traditions and customs. But I think by and large, as long as people know what the hell you're on about, you can get to the joke. The trick is, you know, not to find yourself in Johannesburg and start bollocking on about tube strikes. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it just yeah. don't just don't go on about stuff they've never heard of and don't care about, and you'll probably be okay. That I yeah. think is the trick. Yeah, I mean, just make sure people get your references and they can understand your accent. Yeah, I mean, um, in the UK, but, you know, you know, the whole North South divide thing. Do you know what I mean? It's a... can be, yeah, can be. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, certainly, you know, it's, it's. I don't know. I mean, I think my audience, certainly when I'm touring, there's a degree of self-selection going on and that I've been going on for so long. that, And I think, you know, my crowd, they know me. They know what my hang-ups are. They know what yeah. buttons are. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're not going to be, you know, too alarmed or disgusted or surprised by anything I come out with, or at least they shouldn't be. And I think it's, <laughs> I think there has to be a degree of caveat. I think when you're going to a comedy tour show, you know, you're going to comedians just solo show, I think there yeah. has to be a degree of caveat emptor. You know, you yeah. have to familiarize yourself with what this guy does and make sure it's something that you're, you're going to want to sit through. I think less so if it's a comedy club. I think comedy club, the onus is more on us, the performers, mm. to be as universal as possible or as mm. accessible as possible, you know, uh, because they haven't chosen you. They've just come out to have a laugh. And, you know, the onus is more upon us in that situation to find a way of making them laugh rather than just decide, you know, oh, this is beneath me. You know, um, the time to decide it's beneath you is when you get offered the gig. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the time to decide. That, the time to decide that something isn't worth your attention is when you're offered it, not when you turn up. <laughs> yeah, once you turn up, it's too late to decide that's that this it. is beneath you. You know, um, you know, yeah, give it your best damn shot. And one thing I really can't handle, and I haven't seen this for a while, but I have seen it never from comedians who went on to become particularly successful. It has to be said, probably for obvious reasons, is comedians who get grumpy with small audiences. Mm. Think it over, you stupid bastard. These are the people who turned up. <laughs> These are the ones who actually turned up. And now you've got a cob on because of the 200 who didn't. <laughs> you know, you're angry with the, you know, you're getting angry with the people who aren't in the room. But the people who are in the room yeah, are literally your only reason. They're your only fucking reason to exist right now. And you're having a queenie fit at them. Yeah. Think it over, you stupid git. You know what I mean? So that's so one thing I, I have very little patience with is comedians who get snarky at small audiences. Yeah, you know, that it's doesn't like, make sense. No, it's not whoever's fault it is. It's absolutely not theirs. They're the good guys. They're the ones who are here. You know, show some respect, you bloody prima donnas. You know, so it's a yeah. That's one thing I have, I, I I give very little shrift to is is comedians who get snarky at small audiences. 
Yeah, and anyway, it's a challenge. It's a challenge getting a small audience. It is harder to make a small yeah. audience laugh. No, so I know what, what you mean. Stadium. I know what you mean. You've had you a know. lot of flirtations with social media over the years. Twitter is a case, <laughs> is a case, a case in point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on Twitter too damn much. Well, yes. that's a, that, well, no, but do you think it, it's a good, it has its good points and it has its bad points, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? It depends, it depends what it's, you want it's to do. It's kind of become where I work. Mm. That's the trouble. It's kind of become my workplace. Social media's kind of become my workplace. You know, it's it's where I work now. It's where yeah. I reach out to new potential audience members. Even though, uh, it, you know, um, when I post videos, the ones that go viral, it tends to be via Twitter and Facebook. You yeah, know? yeah. That's what brings your audience in because I've had my Patreon up and running since 2017 and it's an absolute bloody godsend as regards mm. keeping the wolf in the door. Mm. But one thing it doesn't do at all is help you generate following. Yeah. It helps you to develop, nurture, and indeed monetize the following that you already have, but yeah. it doesn't do a damn thing to bring new people in. So you have to do that yourself. You've got to keep producing new stuff in the hope that it will, you know, that it will either go viral or just have some reach, and that's how you bring new people in. But mm. it's, yeah, it has a great, I mean, the thing is, it's all changed in that respect. Oh, I mean, yeah. I will still occasionally get people saying, so how do you break into comedy? And I can say, mate, I can tell you how to break into comedy <laughs> in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, you know, for example, I've been going for 10 years before YouTube was even a thing. Yeah. And now you're getting people having entire careers on YouTube. No, and crazy. if they ever get around to doing a, you know, and if they ever get around to bother doing a live gig, it's at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. It's literally like the first gig they ever play. The whole TikTok oh, it's fascinating. That, but oh it's fascinating. What I think is fascinating about TikTok is that TikTok seems to be full of people who've gotten famous on TikTok doing something other than what they'd intended to do on TikTok. Because my thing on TikTok, the only thing I've done, I'll put all my songs up there, put a few little sketches mm, up there. And then mm. the, the thing I did on TikTok that really captured people's imagination was when I started talking about accents. Because I'm endlessly fascinated by accents. Yeah, and something yeah. I probably will do if this all actually drives up completely is retrain as a dialect coach. Because I find that fascinating. And dialect coaching has really come on on a scientific level in the last mm, 30 mm. years or so. Because it's really not about making sounds. It's about getting your head into the right shape. Yeah. If you get your head into the right shape, the sounds will just happen. But it's about making the right shape with your head, you know. And uh, I, so I did a video about how the letter R is, in fact, four completely different sounds made by different parts of your mouth. Yeah. But we treat it as a single consonant. But it's not. It's four. It's at least four different ones. The English go R with your lips. Yeah. R, yeah. right? Now, there's slight variations on that, like that sort of estuary one, which is mainly with a top lip, like R. <laughs> and that's why you yeah. tend to find the RW speech impediment more rare than anywhere else. Because <laughs> it's a place where the R is closest to the W. You know, now you would never find the RW speech impediment in Scotland because in Scotland you didn't use your lips to say R, you use your tongue oh, rough yeah. like that. You didn't have to do the whole rough thing. Nobody really does that, but it's always with the tongue rough like that. It's like a D that doesn't quite connect rough like that. And something <laughs> I only noticed when I did the videos that Scousers do that as well. Scousers have the tongue R. So, all right, mates, come on, you yeah, then. It's, yeah. it's not rare. It's the, I, I, I never yeah. even noticed that. So I grew up doing the Tsongar, and I never even noticed it. You know, uh, and I think the Welsh do the Tsongar as well. Yeah, they do. Uh, Irish do the, the lips as well. Australians do the lips, but they have a strange variation on it where they just kind of leave your lips loose and drop the jaw, rah, like that. So it's like further down your face, rah. <laughs> uh, and the American, 
<laughs> and you know, the French and the Germans have a completely different sound, which is produced with the throat. They call it a glottal ah, like that. So that is a completely different sound as well. Uh, that is French and German. And the American R is with the back of the tongue, like that. Kind of curl the sides of the back of your tongue up and go, and uh, so that's a totally different sound as well. Um, so R is in fact four, and I did a video about this, and that one went berserk. I got yes. literally millions of hits on that one, and I thought that is so weird because you keep finding people on TikTok who are doing something very odd, and then you go back through their time stream and you discover that they started off doing something else. Mm. My favorite TikToker is somebody who's actually becoming quite famous on my TikToker. Is a young guy called Dylan Hollis, tall, thin, very camp, very gay theater musical theater student from Bermuda. <laughs> so he looks like he looks like he was drawn by the Disney Corporation about 1950. <laughs> but uh, but he speaks with an American accent, but uses a lot of Anglicisms, which I find okay. is kind of fascinating. He says "daft," and "daft" sounds so weird in in in, in a basically a North American accent. But he started off trying to do travelogues about Bermuda and singing show tunes on his accordion, right? <laughs> But somebody, that's what he starts off doing. But what he's, what he's ended up doing is somebody, for some reason, people started sending him recipes, specifically but not exclusively cake recipes right. that they found in antique cookbooks. <laughs> right? And so what he's been doing is doing the recipes, these ancient recipes, to yeah. see if they're any good. Uh, you know, so like cake recipes from the Depression, when it's basically made just sort of, you know, just made out of sawdust and hope, you know, um, uh, or, you know, so really bizarre, tacky recipes from the 70s. When, you know, and all those American recipes that don't use any raw ingredients at all, you know, everything's packets. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah, everything yeah. So it's, you just like, this isn't being cooked, it's being assembled, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's, it's all from sort of, you know, packaged food stuff. There's almost no raw ingredients in any of it, you know, and, and, and these have gone so viral to the point that he's actually putting out a retro cookbook. Oh, my God. You know, he's, and, and that was not what he wanted to, what, what he expected to do. Mm. He was going to sing show tunes and talk about Bermuda, and now suddenly he's become that tall, skinny guy who does exactly. antique recipes. And I think he's, he's, he just happens to be a really, really talented broadcaster and communicator, you know. But, but that's the other thing, and this is something that my generation hasn't really got its head around yet, which is those guys are not auditioning. You see, when my generation, mm. you know, the Gen Zs, we look at something like somebody putting a YouTube channel together or something like that, what we see is a pitch, right? What yeah. we see yeah, is yeah, an audition. Yeah. What we see is somebody going, look how talented I am, important industry people. Please give me a real <laughs> job. And no. That is the real job. Because if you think about it, if somebody's got 3 million YouTube subscribers mm. and gets something like 80 grand every time he posts a five-minute yeah. video, yeah. the fuck's he going to sign to the Disney channels? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, what yeah. have they possibly got to offer him that he hasn't already forged out for himself? And there are whole generations now of young YouTubers and TikTokers who are getting famous with the kids, and oh, there yeah. were no grown-ups in the equation at all. Yeah, because this is, and this is something my generation and the previous generation, the boomers, can't really get their heads around, which is that yeah. whenever anybody got rich and successful, it was because some old white guy in an office had said it was okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was a chain Whether of events. Yeah. yeah, it was the commissioning editor of this channel or the head yeah. A&R guy at this label or some old white guy behind the desk and went, yes, that kid, we're going to make him a star. <laughs> 
But what's happening now is that the kids making the videos are becoming stars among the kids consuming the videos. Mm. And the grown-ups aren't even seeing any of yeah. this happen. Yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I'm not that hip. There are whole, gen- you know, genres of online celebrity that I just do not understand. Like people who've essentially gotten massively wealthy and famous by making people watch them play video games. Yeah. I mean, that is just unfathomable to it's me. It's crazy, I mean, it's isn't like, it? It doesn't make, it just doesn't yeah. make sense. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't grasp the entertainment value of watching some shouty guy play Fortnite. I know. You know, I don't, I don't really understand that at any level. But I'm not going to gainsay it, and I'm not going to dismiss it because it's obviously a thing. Just because it's something my generation will never understand. But it is. It's completely changed. So you know, and that's the other thing which things like Edinburgh need to worry about. Yeah, is that definitely. Not only. Not only are they not the express route into the industry that they used to be, mm. but the industry isn't as important as it used to yeah, be. Yeah. You can now, and people are doing, bypass the industry yeah. and communicate directly with your audience. And that's kind of what I've been doing for the past, you know, six, seven years with the Patreon. Yeah. Is, you know, um, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get back on the radio. Kind of doubt I'm ever getting on the TV now. Well, I'll never um, say never, Mitch, my, you know? <laughs> no, never say never. No, absolutely not. Well, no, I mean, look at Dave Bloody Johns becomes a movie star at the end of about 66 or whatever it was. Crazy. I mean, oh, that was just, that was one of the great punch the air moments on the kid. Because, you know, we are a bunch of jealous old queens. And every time <laughs> one of us gets a massive break, every time one of us gets a massive break, there's usually an element of, oh, yeah, do you have to bloke to get that? Yeah, it's like, well done. But I don't, <laughs> exactly. But there was nothing but goodwill. When Dave John's oh, movie star suddenly happened. He's a legend. You know what I mean? It's just like, because, but also, A, he's a, he's a good guy. You know, he's one of the good guys. Yeah. He really is. B, by Christ, he'd put the hours in. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, he's been on the circuit since about 1982 or something, you know. And thirdly, it was that little glimmer of hope for all the bitter middle-aged bastards like myself suddenly go, Dave Johns just became a movie star in the <laughs> 60s, you know. And, and if you told us all at the beginning, like two years previously, one of you guys is going to become, it will be the leading man of the movie that wins the Palm Door. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Which of you is it going to be? Place your bets now. <laughs> Dave Johns wouldn't even have gotten onto the first two pages of suggestions. Yeah. Well, no, he's, now, that was be, direct, he's doing theatre directing as well now, isn't he? With he's the, doing, like, Daniel he's Blake. doing the Daniel Blake. He's doing the Daniel Blake stage show. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying, but I mean, so the thing is, yeah, you're absolutely right. Never say that. And yeah, really? another one was Milton because Milton was had been Milton was very established when I first arrived in London. You yeah, know, he was yeah. like headlining gigs. I was scraping my way onto him, like '96, mm. '97, and. As far as the public are concerned, Milton Jones was rocketed to stardom in about 2012. You know what I mean? As far as, yeah. as, far as the general public is concerned, Milton Jones is a complete unknown who was suddenly rocketed to stardom on Mock the Week in about 2012. No, Milton Jones had been toiling in literal obscurity for about 30 years by then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And that is, it just suddenly all came together. And I think certainly after kind of the rise of Jimmy Carr, I think a lot of people thought that Milton had probably had it. because. Yeah. That kind of weird, slightly dark one-liner thing. We just mm. thought, well, that's been done now. You know what mm. I mean? I mean, they're not really that alike at all, but you know what it is. You know, the minute, you know, and it's, it's, and, but yeah, so I think we were all like really over, because also Milton's an absolute sweetheart as well. Oh, He's yeah. a really, really good guy. Uh, and so when Milton 
because he's about the same age as me when he was suddenly rocketed to start him in must have been like his early mid 40s and you know because he he looks a bloody youthful as well i think the pundits <laughs> assumed he was 28 you know I mean, yeah. he wasn't he was about 40 you know um but you know uh, and so yeah you do okay so and, and that's not you know that i would in no way turn something like this down and i don't know i've gotten a bit more mature now i can turn tv stuff down now i've turned down a few nibbles at tv re- because largely i think i've matured to the point where i know what i'm getting stitched up there yeah. was an example a couple of years ago do you remember when darren grimes had david starkey on his podcast and yeah, david yeah. starkey said something that was factually accurate in as far as it went <laughs> but expressed it in a really infelicitous <laughs> way i think he was i think he was talking about you know the difference between genocide and slavery and he said well of course, of course genocide isn't slavery because there's still blacks everywhere <laughs> And everybody just went, oh, oh there's yeah. probably oh. a better way of saying that for a, a professor. <laughs> but anyway, but Grimes got in all kinds of trouble for this. And yeah. the, the, the question in social media at the time was, is it Grimes' responsibility if Starkey drops a clangor on his podcast? Mm. And I came in on the side of, well, actually, yeah, I think it is. Certainly when I was on the radio, our stuff was going through like three levels of lawyers before it got broadcast. Oh, yeah. I'll because imagine. the BBC as the broadcaster, was responsible for what went out on the air. It wasn't the guy whose face the words came out of. Yeah. It was the person who then yeah. presented it to the public was responsible for that content. So I think, you know, my point was, regardless of whether or not what you think David Starkey said was bad, mm. it is Darren's responsibility to, you know, to control the content of his podcast. And I got a call from the producers at Good Morning Britain saying, do you want to come on and talk all about this? And I went, <laughs> no. Let me think about that. Because that, no, it's an idea, but no, because that's not what you want to no, talk about. No, why it? would you do that? Because what you want to do is for me to sit there while Piers Morgan says, oh, I suppose everybody who disagrees with yeah. you is racist. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's... what you want. Yeah. And the fact is, I don't even particularly have an opinion over what David Starkey said was racist. He certainly used some fairly racist sounding language, but he wasn't actually making a racist point. I don't even really have an opinion over what David Starkey said is racist. My opinion was whether or not it was Darren Grimes' responsibility yeah. to, get, you know, to control the guy on this podcast. But you, you don't give a shit about that. That's not what you no, want to But there must have been about. some editing you want, involved, you know? Yeah. You want me to sit there and be the liberal who is wrong and get shouted at by, you know, the, the voice of the people. So, no thanks. You know, yeah. and I remember, you know, signing off on the email and thinking, ooh, that was mature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fairly sure not that I'll go, oh, yeah, telly, 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 telly. Yeah. And I go, no, yeah. there's telly and there's telly, and telly no. that's basically you getting stitched up is probably exactly. not a good idea. Pick your battles. So, yeah, yeah. Pick your battles. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But um, the thing is, I was you know, talking about, you know, I have, to a degree, been bypassing this industry myself for the past few years. Yeah, yeah. And you can actually do that, and that's one of the good things about this being the year 2023 and not the year 2003, mm. is that you mm. can now. You know, because this thing, you don't actually need, to keep your head above water, you don't actually need that much of the general public, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. What you really, what you really need is a, is a devoted hardcore. You yeah. need, because yeah. if you have, what you need, right, is people who are so into what you do that they are willing to spend between 50 and 100 quid a year on your stuff, whether that's merch, concert tickets, yeah. subscription, yeah. whatever, yeah. right? They are willing to spend. Now, if you have, say, the lower end, 50, 
right? Yeah. If you have 100 people a year, 100 people are willing to spend 50 quid a year on your stuff, that's not a living, but it's an income stream. Right. It's five yeah. grand a year that can yeah. be added to the pile that it all helps. You know, yeah, yeah. if you've got a thousand people who are willing to spend 50 quid a year on your stuff, now you're earning a living. Mm. Right. And if you've got two thousand people who are willing to spend now you're making money. Oh, definitely. Do you see what I mean? But that's only two thousand people. You know, and if you think about, you know, even the lowest rated stuff on cable mm. gets like. 50 or 60,000, mm. you know, you only need about to, and the great thing of it being the modern age is that they don't all even have to be in the same country as you. Yeah. Oh yeah. You need 2000 people anywhere in the world. You know, yeah. I've yeah. on my Patreon, I've got about 300. Yeah. But that keeps the wolf at the door between that and I'll write a newspaper column. Mm. And between that and that, that, that kind of pays for most things. So, you know, the, the, the gigging that I do on top of that is I, I get to be a bit elective about it. I get to be sort of, well, do I really want to do this? And if it's like, you know, yeah, sounds like a laugh or yeah, that's pretty decent money. Then we'll yeah. do it. And everything else I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, I'll be as well, diplomatic no, as possible. You don't want to be doing any old busy, shit. You, know, you don't want to be doing any old shit. Well, you know what I mean? Know. Just, it's, it's yeah, you know, you I mean, just I'm, pick what you want to do bit old to be doing any old shit, you know, but, but that's what the thing is. So that's, you know, the other reason, way that things have changed is the ways into the industry have changed unrecognizably in the last 20 years. Yeah. But also the importance of the industry has diminished. You can buy, you know, I mean, there is a sweet spot. You know, you need to have, like I said, one of the things about Patreon is it's no good for generating new following. It's mm. good for nurturing and developing the following you have and monetizing yeah. the following that you have. Yeah, yeah. But you have to do stuff above and beyond it to bring the people in in the first place. And there is a bit of a sweet spot, which fortunately I think I land right in because much less profile than me and you're kind of howling into the void you know yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's and i can see also whether there would be a kind of an awkward zone of patron where you had like 30 or 40 followers so mm. you've got enough to you've got enough people have signed up to oblige you to keep producing stuff but you're not making anybody out of it either you know what i mean i can see how that would be a kind of an awkward zone yeah um but by the same token much more of a profile than me and it might seem all a bit well, what's this guy doing coming cap in hand on the internet? Thought mm. he was meant to be bloody famous. You know, but, but of course, it's not cap in hand. It's just, it's still commerce. I mean, it's the thing about Kickstarter, you know, and Kickstarter yeah. started yeah. up. And people yeah, were like, yeah. you know, oh, this is all a bit beggy. And it's just like, it's not begging in the same way that it's not knitting. That's just literally not what it is. No, why it's not commerce. utilize? It's why not utilize it? Well, Do you know what I mean? It, it, it makes perfect it's, sense. It's, it's just it's just raw bloody capitalism. And the, the difference is that you are getting the seed money from the end user rather than of a third party. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're kickstarting something, whether it's on like, you know, uh, Unbound or Kickstarter or something, mm. what you are doing is rather than what you used to have to do in the old days, which is borrow money from a third party, be it some kindly benefactor, patron or just the bank. Yeah. And then you would do your thing in the hope that you would get your money back from the end consumer, you know, mm. um, the film goer, the book buyer, the concert goer, the record buyer, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, you have to persuade this third party that you will make your money back. Otherwise, mm. you're not going to. Whereas what you're doing with crowdfunding is you are getting the money from the end consumer up front. Yeah. And that way, if you don't raise the money, as indeed sometimes people don't, then it won't, you weren't going to make it back. Mm. <laughs> just yeah. what I mean. Yeah. It's just in that respect, it actually makes the most sense of any way of funding a project. Rather than borrowing it from somebody who you'll then end up in horrible debt to if it yeah. doesn't work, 
you know, you try and borrow it essentially from the people who are going to be buying it in the end anyway. So it's just commerce. You know, it's just capitalism. It's just buying and selling. It's just a new way of doing it. You know, it's it's not charity. Yeah. You know, Patreon isn't charity. No. Well, it's a transaction. It's charity. It's you know, a transaction, begging for isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm selling subscriptions, and they're getting, you know, they're getting perks and freebies, you know, on uh, for those subscriptions. You know? And it's great. It's, it's, it's lovely. What's been really fascinating is watching the evolution of, of the Internet to, for, to find, you know, the definitive way of doing all this. Because when I made my first video for one of my singles, which is Everything Sounds Like Coldplay back mm. in 2005, we actually had to pay a hosting site to host that. And, of course, it was about two inches across and crunchy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, b- b- because, because there was no YouTube. Yeah. You know, yeah. and a couple of years later, it was dead easy. You hosted it on YouTube and you could embed it in your site and link to it everywhere. And that's still what I do. You know, I can't be bothered paying for video hosting. Just stick it up no. on YouTube, you know. No, uh, and then so that kind of sorted itself out. And around the same time, it used to be really fiddly to spend small amounts of money online. Mm. So PayPal happened and now, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of yeah. this process of evolution whereby the need is, you know, necessity is literally mothering invention and then i was aware of a bunch of kind of independent acts like comedian songwriters and everything in the noughties Mm. who were trying to get some kind of subscription service going Mm. because nobody was buying records streaming hadn't been invented and it was very difficult to make money back on the live circuit so the only guy who actually got it to work was an american comic songwriter called jonathan colton who had a massive following Mm. And he, to a certain extent, almost invented Patreon because he got a sort of proto-Patreon thing up and running in the noughties, whereby you subscribed to, you know, the the, the Jonathan Colton Club and you got all his stuff early and you got some stuff. Uh, you know, exclusively and everything. And that almost became like, I don't know whether the people who set Patreon actually had one eye on what Jonathan Colton did. But then, of course, Patreon happened. And now that's the way of funding yourself as an independent producer. You know, and it's and it's, it's been fascinating, you know, in much the same way that, you know, when I first started to put stuff off for download, it was difficult. I had to pay to host it and I had to juggle the money and it was a bloody yeah. nightmare, you know. But now there's Bandcamp and the SoundCloud yeah. and it's dead easy, yeah. you know. And, 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 and what it is, is it's taking a lot of the gatekeepers out. A lot of the gatekeepers, a lot of the middlemen out. So if you've got a following now, you can communicate directly with them. Yeah. Far fewer people are taking a cut. So, you know, the, the audience feels great about the fact that you know i mean i have literally just this week re-released my first album fantastic because it's the 25th anniversary of it it's the 25th anniversary of my That's first crazy. album the unnecessary mitch ben and so i have put it up as a digital reissue it's gone up on my bank site for the first time because i thought i'd run out years ago and then having a bit of a clear out i found one last box of them so i thought <laughs> right on the 25th anniversary this is going up online so it's up online now amazing uh, and it's kind of fascinating because it's also the only one of my albums which is uh got stand up on as well as songs you know um but that's, you know, that's up on Bandcamp and people are buying it, people are downloading it and they are doing so safe in the knowledge that I'm going to get most of that money. Yeah. Whereas, you yeah. know, if you were putting it out through, um, you know, if you put it out through a major record label, then I'd be getting buttons on the dollar, you know, because that's, that's all you get. And it's fascinating because I remember, you remember Ryan Adams, you know, not Brian, Ryan Adams. Oh, the uh, Canadian singer-songwriter. Singer-songwriter. Yeah. No, you know, I, I forget whether he was Canadian as well. I know Brian is, but I think Ryan might be as well. But anyway, right, he got quite badly me tooed a couple of years ago. Uh, right. Like it came out that he'd, he'd been, I think, sleazing after his support act and his missus dumped him rather oh, theatrically. Dear. And it all kind of, it all kind of came out and he was sort of 
at least partially banished into Outer Darkness. And I remember he popped up on Facebook about 18 months ago, essentially pleading for a new record deal. And I remember thinking, why? It's yeah. not going to make any difference. Yeah. Because I don't know to what extent he's lost his fan base. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't really read up on the full extent of what he got caught out doing. I don't know how gruesome it was. There's a massive sliding scale in operation here, as we know. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, it, it's like, yeah, it sounds like what he was doing inappropriate. I don't know how yeah. inappropriate it was. Certainly evident, but it, enough for his missus to blow him out but you know whether whether you know anyway, so anyway, i don't know to what extent how grim it was and what came out about it so i don't know whether he's managed on his fan base or not but the thing is if he's held on to his, if he hasn't held on to his fan base if they've essentially decided now nah, fuck this and deserted him then just getting signed <laughs> up to wea is not going to change yeah, that no 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 yeah the record deal is not going to change that but by the same token if he's still got his fan base he doesn't need a bloody record contract he needs a macbook Bandcamp, and patreon exactly you know, that's, that's all he needs. Fan you know, are pretty loyal, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? As a, as well, this is it. And at the end of the day, you can kit out your box room to professional studio standards now for about 2,000 quid. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, literally, you can get it up to, you know, professional studio standards for about 2,000 quid. You can put everything you release up on Bandcamp, you know, or up on SoundCloud. I find that I sometimes make more money on the stuff that I put up there for free because you can... Set you don't actually put it up for free, but you put it up for minimum price zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, so what people you can, can pay if they, people can pay if they want, or they can download it for free. And for a few years now, every Christmas I put the same two. Every December, put the same two Christmas thing because I'm a, I'm a bit weird about Christmas. I love <laughs> Christmas, but I refuse to get involved with anything Christmassy outside of December. <laughs> I've got an absolute moratorium on any Christmas. When those bloody holiday adverts started using most magical time of the year, I yeah. was fucking furious. In August. Like, don't you dare play me this bloody song in August. <laughs> Fuck off. You're breaking my moratorium. You're breaking my embargo, you stupid bastard. Anyway, so I, I got really annoyed. I got really... No, seriously, I was up in arms. Um, but... Every December, at the beginning of December, I post the same two things on my bank app. And it's yeah, yeah. A, a complete unabridged audio book I did many years ago of A Christmas Carol. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. stuck in a hotel room in Cardiff with a mini disc machine and fuck all to do. So I recorded the whole of A Christmas Carol as an audio book. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, and also because I was on the radio for decades mm. and one or other of the radio shows I was on would usually be on in December. I've written a lot of Christmas songs over the years. Mm. Uh, and so, and every year I write at least one more and add it to the mix. So I put up my Christmas album. I'm the only person I know who's written a, has done a Christmas album with no covers on it. Because <laughs> I love Christmas albums, but I can't help thinking, you know, does the world really need another dozen versions of chestnuts bursting on an open fire every bleeding December? You know? So my Christmas album is all originals. It's all, there's no covers on it. So every year I would put those two up at the beginning of December. Yeah. And then in Christmas 2020, because we'd all been locked indoors all year, and mm. it looked like Christmas was going to be bloody miserable oh, because man. we were essentially locked down again. Yeah. I actually went, you know, in most years I would put up the audio book for free mm. and I would put the, the Christmas album up for like eight quid. And I went, you know what? Screw it. Have them both for free this year. My present. <laughs> have them both for free. It's been a shit year, and it looks like it's going to be a highly questionable Christmas. So have them both for free. And I made more money on the Christmas album that year than ever before. That's crazy, isn't it? Because people, I'm sure a lot of people downloaded it for free, but more people made the choice to download it and bung me like a fiver yeah. Yeah. than had ever paid full price for it. 
no, no. I mean, I'm but it's like about having a loyal fan base. Do you know what I mean? You've got a loyal fan base. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, but I think most of the really loyal fan base probably already had it. But the point was, by putting it up there for free, I actually made money. So, you know, I don't know why anybody, any sort of recording artist of any size and weight whose contract expires, I don't know why you'd ever sign a bloody record deal again. I don't guess. And that's the great thing about the modern age is that we've cut so many of the gatekeepers out. Yeah. Because that's the thing about radio comedy is that there's only really one channel that does radio comedy. You know, mm. BBC Two keep Radio Two keeps changing its mind about whether it wants to do comedy or not. So there's really and the, the Americans have complete. That's one of the interesting things about the podcasting era is it's reintroducing, you know, a global audience to audio comedy. Because yes. Yeah. One of the fascinating things about the Americans is is, is that they have no concept, or until recently, had no concept of radio comedy, mm. which is bizarre. Because American radio comedy in the 1940s is the most single, most popular broadcasting there's ever been. Right. The Jack Benny show yeah, and, yeah. The, uh, and, and the, the Marx Brothers show on radio in the 1940s mm. used to literally get hundreds of millions yeah, yeah. every week. And then it was bizarre because at the, yeah, the advent of the 50s, TV comedy starts at about 1952. And it not only eradicates radio comedy almost overnight, but within about 10 years, it seems to have eradicated the memory of radio comedy. Mm. To the point now when you say to Americans, I used to do a lot of comedy. There's a comedy on the radio? How the hell does that work? <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you, know, you know what I mean? And it's like, well, you know, I don't know, mate, but I did it for a long time. But one of the fascinating things about the podcast is it's reintroducing you know, people to the, the concept of audio comedy. Which yeah. is kind of lost for, uh, for, for, for many generations. But like I say, the thing about radio comedy is an actual literal radio comedy is that mm. there are, you know, there are layers and layers and, and, uh, you know, station controllers and directors of comedy or whatever that you've got to get approved by. And only one of them has got to knock it back and it's just not happening. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So really. if any one of them, if, 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 if one of like two people, decide that they don't like your idea then mm. you're not get, you're not doing comedy on the radio it's as simple as that yeah. so it's kind of essential that there are alternate routes out there so you know the, the comedy podcast these days i listen to lots of comedy podcasts and they're, they're brilliant absolutely brilliant i mean zeltzman's bugle is just a work of bloody genius it really <laughs> isn't and it actually bizarrely went from strength to strength after he lost john oliver yeah. i think a lot of us thought that's probably the end of that then once john you know <laughs> after off to be a tv star but but it's, it's, if anything, it's gone from strength to strength. Of the you know, um, well, where's John Oliver he's now? Had his, you know? his, his rotating cast. Oh, Oliver's doing all right. He's got no <laughs> complaints. But you know, um, but I'm glad that Zalt, I'm really. I was really glad when Zalto got the news quiz. You know, he is. Well, I say, I'm not sure if he is underrated anymore. But he has always been one of the most underrated comedy minds in no, the country. That's a fine, fine, com fine comedy mind. Uh, he's, he's one of those very unique comedy minds you know i mean i i don't have one of those i'd like to but i don't i'm pretty good at what i do but there's something quite special about andy than just about the way his brain works your brain either works like that or it doesn't you know what i mean there's, there's not much you can do about it if it doesn't um but no I'm, i was very very pleased when when, when andy got the news quiz mm. because i think he's a genius oh, he's, he's an absolute fucking genius i really do he's a great and he's a good guy he's a nice guy as well yeah, uh, no, that's us now. It is a whole yeah, new sorry. world, and there are ways yeah. of doing it now that we couldn't have dreamt of oh, back no. in my day. No, you know, back in crazy. back when I started, you know, there was there were really only a few very specific ways in, and and, and so say all of us, quite frankly, because an, an art form always gets a shot in the arm when it gets democratized, no, when no, it gets no. taken away from the people who've been instructed in how to do it properly. 
yeah. and handed over to a puncher <laughs> and basically thrown open to all the randoms who just fancy having a go. Yeah, all these guys, you know, on, that, all these guys you know, on TikTok. About music now. You're obviously a very, very musical Why person. Not very musical person. Yeah, so, have there been any big music yeah. clubs in your life, be it a band or a, or an artist? Obviously, the the Beatles were. Oh, kind I mean, of like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, you were the Beatles are kind of unavoidable. You know, I mean, mm. there's all the obvious ones like Beatles and Zeppelin and everything. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, one of the things I realised actually when Rick Mail died was mm. that Rick and Aid were my rock stars when I was a teenager. Oh yeah. You know, at the time at the time when you're meant to be obsessing about bands and waiting, you know, you. To have the band that you follow everywhere and you wait with bated breath for their new album, yeah. My rock stars were Rick and Aid. I just waited to see what Rick and Aid were mm. going to do, and Night, you know. Yeah. I just was just waiting to see what Rick and Aid would do next, and uh, they're my absolute bloody rock stars. My thing about music is I have ridiculously eclectic musical taste, I like the good parts of everything, and that sounds like a total bloody cop out, but it's not. <laughs> and one of the fun things, well, actually, one of the fun things about the mu- the way I've ended up doing music as this kind of you know all purpose parodist, yeah, is that I get to play every everything you know i've got to play even with my band you know we get i get to play reggae i get Mm -hmm. to play heavy metal i get to play you know um funk i get to play folk i get to play blues sometimes in the same bloody song you know um (laughs) and that's and that's one of the things i love you know because i remember thinking of much as i love for example iron maiden and I'm going to go and see them in the O2 again next month. Very good, very good. I'll go out my mind if I was in Iron Maiden. Because <laughs> all, all, all they ever get to play is Iron Maiden. You know? It's like, yeah, even Iron Maiden must wake up suddenly and go, can we maybe do some reggae on the next one? No, oh, we're going to, you know, it just, you know. And, and so I go, I go out my mind if I could only ever play the one kind of music. And, and yeah. by play, I mean, you know, listen to and yeah, perform. No, I go out my mind if I can only, you know. And so I genuinely do like the good bits of everything, whether it's, you know, sort of nosebleed house all the way to like finger picky folk, you know, or, 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 you know, Scottish country dancing music or, or opera or, you know, um, dub reggae or, or thrash metal or, or death metal <laughs> or, you know, a little, a little disco, you know. Yeah. My favourite record of the last few years is Levitating by Dua Lipa. It's an absolute wow. banger, that song. I mean, love it. <laughs> but I was like, I thought, oh, the first time I heard that, I thought, oh, they've nailed this. This is yeah. fantastic, you know. So, you know, so the good, you know, anything played well enough by people who get it yeah, instantly yeah. communicates itself. You know, and whether it's country, whether it's reggae, whether, you know, even stuff like disco and country, the two most denigrated rock mu- musical forms of all time. You hear those done right. It's electrifying, you know? Um, I mean, you know, bad country is probably worse than anything, you know? Um, it's, it's, country's a bit like British food in that respect. It's hard to do well, but done well, anything else. Done badly, it's atrocious. But, but there is no, there is no such thing as a bad musical genre. There's only mm. good and bad songs you know um and so yeah i really do like the good bits of everything i mean i've got various little phases i've been through i suppose yeah yeah yeah. i mean one thing which is quite interesting was the all-time classic i'm still probably the most famous person i've ever met the all-time classic never meet your heroes moment and i was uh I've got this mate called Evan Harris, right? You might know the name. He used to be a Liberal Democrat MP. Mm-hmm. And after he lost his seat in 2010, he became the legal guy for Hugh Grant's hacked off thing. 
you know, oh my Hughes, God. Um, Hughes, I've got a lovely Hughes story to tell you in a minute, actually. Um, Hughes uh, anti-tabloid thing. So as a result, uh, but I was at school with Evan, right? Um, he was a couple of years older than me. But as, as a result, when he was an MP, I would occasionally out the blue get invited to things in the Houses of Parliament. And now he's running Hughes thing. I would occasionally get out the blue invited to like their parties, you know. So about 10 years ago, I got invited to the hacked off Christmas party. And I felt like such a spare arsehole because it's like this is literally a room full of A-list celebs. And the only people there who weren't A-list celebs were, were like civilians who had somehow fallen afoul of the press. Right, right. Like Chris Jeffries, who bizarrely had actually written a song about. Do you remember that weird guy in Bristol who didn't murder his tenant? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, the weird was, hair. Yeah, he had weird hair, and he'd basically been found guilty and hanged in the press, you know, yes. uh, the minute they got a load of him. Well, that's the guy, isn't he? You know? And, of course, it wasn't. He was just a harmless old weirdo, and, of course, it was the boyfriend who did it, because it's always the bloody boyfriend yeah, who yeah, did it. Yeah. Um, but he, so he was there. He was there. And I was thinking, oh, Christ, I'm oh not sure I'm going to stay here. Do you know who it was? was the, you, know, you know who I finally managed to have a good, long, comfortable chat with? Go on. Fucking Sting. No way. <laughs> Sting. But yes, way, Ted, sting, right? <laughs> and the whole time, and, and I'm thinking, this is fucking impossible. Because, A, the police were the first band I kind of got into in my own yeah, life. Yeah. You know, I used to listen to my mum's records, my mum's Beatles records and Bob Dylan records and that kind of thing. Mm. But I liked the police on my own when I was like nine, you know? But also, I've never read a kind word about sting. You know, every article ever published about the guys about what a pompous wanker yeah. he is. You know what yeah. I mean? And, yeah. and the, what a pious arsehole, you know? And, and I'm thinking, this is so unlike. But he was delightful. He was utterly, audibly Geordie when he's off the clock as well. He talks like that when he's, oh, not, really? you know, he's not trying to sound, oh, I talks like that oh, when wow. he just happened to meet him late. I think the problem might be that he's had so many run-ins with journalists over the years that if you're talking to him in any kind of journalistic capacity, he's just like, fuck off, you know. But <laughs> if you just happen to meet the guy, if you just happen to meet the guy, then he's perfectly personal. And I got on like a house on fire with bloody sting, you know. So uh, but that's, you know, the, the archetypal never meet your heroes moment. But, I mean, but I've met a lot of my heroes over the years, and by and large, they've all been okay. I think people just need to get better heroes. I've just got to tell you the Hugh story. Go on, go on. It's a bit cheeky because it's not 100% my story to tell. It's actually Kirsty's story. Kirsty Newton, who plays in my band and also now plays with the Comedy Store players and everybody. Brilliant, brilliant musician. It was the Fringe about five or six years ago, uh, and we were all in the Abattoir Bar, which is kind of the VIP bar around the back of the underbelly. And it was Kirsty's mum's 70th birthday. Right. So she's running, ra- she's running around with her phone getting videos from just all her com- comedy pals yeah, for yeah. a mum on the occasion of Sophie's birthday. Yeah. And fucking Hugh Grant wanders in, right? <gasps> so Kirsty looks at Hugh Grant at the bar. No idea I was there. You know, Kirsty looks at Hugh Grant and thinks, oh, fuck it, it's worth a shot, isn't Let's it? it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so she rocks up to Hugh, you know, and, uh, you know, and she's a gorgeous little redhead, so his eyes probably lit up round about that, you know. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and she says to you, you know, tells all stories. My mum's 70th birthday. Is it going to be a bit? She goes, right, yes, okay, fine, let's do it, you know. So um, she fires at the phone, and Hugh looks right down the list and goes, hi, Joyce. Um, yeah, uh, sorry I can't be there. Um, obviously, I think we both know it would be a bit awkward. Um, <laughs> but look, I, I want you to know that for me at least, it was never just about the sex. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
And I just thought, you fucking legend. He just like improvised an entire Hugh Grant movie down the thing. And I just like, so yeah, my respect for Hugh rocketed at that moment, you know, and I just, <laughs> so yeah, so that, that was, that was, that was hilarious. So that was just like, well played, sir. Well played. So yeah. Um, so yeah, music is, I mean, I, I can't get away from it. It's, it's, and I wouldn't want to. I was like, eat, yeah. eat, sleep and shit. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you hear stories about, Prince, when he, when he played the Enormo drum of whatever city he was in, the minute he was off stage, his roadies would ship a, a reduced version of his touring rig down to a biggish club venue, and then he and his guest list would retire to this club, and he'd jam till five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> playing Beatles. No, seriously, apparently oh, it was the Kentish Town God. Forum. But it was the Kentish Town Forum was his favourite one in London, apparently. So he'd be on the O2 or Wembley, midnight, and then literally jump in the back of and the van, go to the Kentish Town Forum, and then just play play Beatles tunes till 5am. Oh, my God. Because, you know, he, he just, he just, I mean, he lived in his studio. He lived in Paisley Park. When he died, they found something like, you know, 100 albums worth of underneath yeah. Masters, which yeah, they've, they've sworn never to let see the light of day, because if he wasn't finished with it then it's not coming out you know but some you know and, and, and i'm not obviously of that that magnitude but i just i i can't help it i'm, I'm always you know and i have to always write you know and one mm. of the reasons that i got the patreon going the minute i wasn't on the radio anymore is i needed something to make me write yeah you know i needed to be under the cosh yeah. i needed to be required to come up with new stuff because otherwise you can you can just you can just get bloody lazy and you can just get you know i've i've, I've written all my stuff now you know no i i need to be constantly coming up with new things you know and uh, i think you should never stand still artistically if at all mm. possible i think the minute you decide you think the minute you decide you're the finished article you know it's all gonna it's all gonna go horribly stale yeah you know so in that respect you know the, the the guys who i can't help but admire the most are the ones who have been doing it for decades and they're still trying to do it better yeah you know i mean i went to see mark Steele last week and it was brilliant god he was good he was on such great form. And I remember he's thinking, storming it at the moment, he's been, isn't he? He's absolutely storming it at well, the moment. It's because he's actually, you know, he's never stopped putting the effort in. Yeah, yeah. He's never stopped thinking about how can I do this better. I think also, bizarrely, the time for a good-natured, shouty, lefty comedian is, back <laughs> and, is, is with us again. Yes. What yeah. with one thing or another. Yeah. I don't think people are necessarily up for just being harangued. But Mark is very, very good-natured, but he's also very well-informed and very yeah. clear in his opinions. And I yeah. think that, you know, the time has come again for a good-natured, shouty, lefty comic. But I, 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 was, I saw him last week in, in, uh, in Croydon, uh, actually, because I'm, I'm in a newish relationship. I've been going out with a very nice lady called Kathy for about nine months, mm -hmm. and uh, she's got three autistic kids, and I've got two autistic kids. So we are oh. the neurodivergent Brady yeah. bunch. You know, we really are. Um, it's a fucking, I mean, we have five autistic kids between us. And she's, uh, I think, been diagnosed autistic and ADD. And I'm waiting for my autism diagnosis, which I think will explain a lot. So, yeah, it's a fucking, but one thing Kathy is, is she's a very, very keen and diligent gig goer. Ah, which yes. is something I never really got it. I never really got into the habit of this because hmm. for, for the whole of my, most of my 20s, 30s, and indeed 40s, I was gigging through a job. Yeah, yeah. So on my nights off, it wouldn't really occur to me to go and see something else. Hmm. I just want to kick back. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Um, whereas Kathy is and has always been a very, you know, um, diligent gig goer. So she's got me into going to things because, you know, I've, I've cut my life work right down. So I've got nights off now. 
which is something I've never really known what to do with. So, you know, I've been going to see things, you know. And so, like, for example, in one week we saw four things, and it was ridiculously diverse. On the Monday night, we saw Lenny Henry's new monologue, which is a superb piece of work. And there, classic case of point, Len, right? Yeah, now, Len, yeah. I know a bit because we're both Len, I know a bit because we're both pals with Neil Gaiman, and Neil Gaiman's yeah, pals tend yeah. to run into each other. Okay, now Len, talk about honest to goodness national treasure mm-hmm. and boyhood hero of mine. Oh my god! Because yeah. you know I watched him on Tizwas when I was like eight. Yes. You know, yeah. Um, you know, so literal boyhood hero, national treasure. Could be doing anything he wants right yeah. now. Could yeah. be, you know, filling out the Shepherd's Bush Empire doing the oldies. What he's doing is in Shepherd's Bush, but he's in a tiny little art centre which seats maybe 150 people. And he's doing this hilarious but also gut-wrenching monologue about Windrush Gate. Mm. Oh, well. And I'm thinking... Oh, somebody press some medals for this man because <laughs> he does not need the, he does not need to be doing this in his no, series. no, exactly. Do you know what I mean? He does not. I don't. He probably don't, unless he signed some very bad publishing deals back in the day. <laughs> I don't think he needs to be doing anything in his sixties. He should probably be living off residuals. But here he is, and literally, you know, the kind of size venue I play. Yeah. You know, like a, a hundred, hundred and fifty seat of art center. Doing this unbelievably heartfelt, very, very funny and engaging, but ultimate gut punch of a monologue called August in England about Windrush Gate, about, you know, people who came over from Jamaica in the Mm. 50s and 60s who lived whole lives in Britain and suddenly got their citizenship rescinded. Because, you know, that that bit got farmed out to a private company who needed to get some results, you know, and, and, and it's horrendous what those people went through. And I remember thinking, this is an amazing piece of work, A, just because of what it is, but B, because it's Len. And Len doesn't mm. need to be doing this. You know, Len could be home right now, but here he is doing this something which obviously means the world to him mm. in a tiny little room. And I just think, you know, and that's a classic example of what I was talking about a minute ago. And this is a man who has been at the absolute height of the profession oh, yeah. for literally knocking on, for, for literally knocking on for 45, no, over 45 years. He won oh, new faces when he was 17. Mm. You know, he won new faces when he was 17. So he's been an Ivy's profession for 45 bloody years. You know, for an entire human lifespan. Could be putting his feet up, but he's still trying to find ways of doing it better. Trying to find ways to make it more. Because he wrote this. He wrote the whole thing, obviously. And, and it's got elements of stand-up in it. You know, it's yeah. a monologue. It's a very funny guy doing a monologue. So, that, you know, there's, there's stand-up elements in it. And there's, when he interacts, there's bits when he interacts with the audience. But he's still finding a ways to, make, to do it better, to make it more meaningful, to make it and, and you know, I'm I'm just I'm unstinting in my, in my admiration for that. Mm. You know? But for example, the night after that, we went to see the Dead Kennedys in the Electric Oh Ballroom. my god, so that was fun. That and then amazing. on Thursday, we went to Windsor to see a production of Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. Right. And then what did we do on the Friday? I can't even remember what we did on the Friday. It might have been the Rocky Horror Show. That's her big thing. Wow. Kathy's big thing is the Rocky Very Horror diverse. Show. She's obsessed with the Rocky Horror Show. So we've been to see that twice already, and I think we're going again on Sunday. <laughs> it's on the Peacock Theatre in Kingsway. It's the 50th anniversary this year of, of the Rocky Horror Show. So the, uh, there's oh. been a, a production touring for the last year that has landed in London, and they're, they're doing all the 50th anniversary celebrations. It's been great fun. It's been great fun. And uh, so, yeah, I'm finally getting into and, and also you should. You should go and see what other people are doing because if you don't, you'll just kind of end up going over the same ground and also compounding your own mistakes. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, you, you should be going to see what other people are doing. Not because you're, nick all, you're going to nick all their ideas, but just because you want to see what's motivating them, how they, yeah, and, exactly. and I think you should always be getting, you know. And one of my other heroes is Bruce Springsteen. And no, I've never met him before you asked. But, you know, <laughs> Springsteen, Springsteen is, what, 72? And every time he takes to the stage, he's thinking, how can I do it better than yeah. last night? Yeah, yeah. Playing three hours just, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because he, he, you know, nobody on earth is happier than Bruce Springsteen when he's on stage. That's oh, that. And, and that also is, funnily enough, there was, you know, just listening to James O'Brien this morning, and he was talking about how the non-vocational courses are disappearing out of schools and everybody's being trained now rather than educated. Mm. And I remember thinking, this is so sad because if you're trained, that's great while there's a demand for the thing you've got trained for. But yeah. what happens when that demand suddenly goes away, yeah. as happens, as we know happens? You know, and, you know, if you get if you get an education, then you can be limitlessly adaptable. You'll always find an application for the skills that you've acquired. Mm. And, and I actually think, you know, when I was a kid, the people I really admired, but not necessarily the people who got wealthy, but the people who kept their head above water doing something that they loved, because I think that is absolutely irreplaceable. And I'm very lucky in them, by and large. I think I probably have more, I probably spend more of my life having fun than the vast majority of people <laughs> my age, you know? Um, you know, and, and weirdly, the shit you get paid for is the stuff you do for free anyway. Yeah. You know, if I was getting yeah. paid by the mile, they could have the comedy for free, you know? As I grew older, I, I realized that in actual fact, yeah, those are the really enviable people, are the ones who are not necessarily getting wealthy, but keeping their head above water doing stuff they love. But it also further occurred to me that actually you are more likely Get rich and successful doing the stuff that you love because you'll do it. You'll put the hours in because it doesn't matter what talents or gifts you are born with to develop and nurture those. And, you know, just on a really blunt level to monetize those yeah, yeah. takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. But if it's something you love, you'll do that work with a big stupid grin on your face. It won't even, you know, the, and the, there won't be a minute of drudgery involved because you'll put the hours in with a big dumb grin on your face because you're, you're doing the thing you love. So I think, you know, I, I'm I'm almost reckless in my tendency to encourage people to follow their dreams. Yeah. But I think people should at the very, very least give their dreams a shot. People should at the very, very least give their dreams the benefit of the doubt. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But you know what is the other thing is even if, even if your dream, your your initial dream doesn't happen, in the effort of trying to make it happen, you may well blunder into something else. Yeah. That turns out to be even more fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean that's kinda of, I mean that's kinda of what happened with me. I never really intended to do comedy. I wanted to be a musician, maybe mm. a legit actor, maybe mm. a maybe because you know, comedy wasn't really an option when I was a kid. It wasn't something you would think of. And as I say, I think that's something which is quite typical of comedians of my generation, us Gen X's is yeah. I don't talk to a lot of comedians my age who always wanted to be a comedian when they grew up. Yeah. Most of us kind of got sidetracked into it while we were trying to do something else. I think that might be different from the younger ones, the ones who grew up in the nineties or were kids in the nineties or after that, maybe, you know, watching, you know, growing up hearing people talking about comedy being the new rock and roll and yeah. seeing all these arena shows and the kids now looking at all the Netflix specials and looking at, you know, John Mulaney filling out Madison Square Gardens yes. or whatever and thinking, yeah. hell yes, I'll have some of that. But, you know, that wasn't really what comedy was when I was a kid. So I never really thought about it. I just kind of blundered into it in my 20s. Mm. Um, but, you know, but, you know, I, I wouldn't have blundered into it if I'd just gone, well, what I need is to get a proper, safe, secure, well-paid job and yeah, forget yeah. all my stupid dreams of showbiz. Yeah. Uh, because 
let's be brutally honest about it. There are no secure, well-paid jobs anymore. No, no. People are getting laid true. off. People are getting laid off out of the army. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are getting made redundant out of the army. You know, so there are no secure, yeah. well-paid jobs. I remember my dad, my late father, saying to this to me when I was a kid, when he set up his own business rather belatedly in his, mm. his 40s. He remember saying, you know, people will tell you, you know, now get a good get a good job with a reputable firm. That's mm. what you need. Nice, safe job with a reputable firm. Yeah, company. job for life. Because job if for you're, life. Yeah. Because if you're working for yourself, right, you'll get paid in a good year and you won't get shit in a bad year. <laughs> Whereas if you're working for a proper company, you'll get paid in a good year and you get paid in a bad year. And he said, that's bullshit. If you're working for a reputable company, you get paid in a good year and you get fired in a bad year. Yeah. Oh, man. And it wasn't even because of anything you did. You turned up on time and did it right every bloody day. But at the end of the year, you know, someone three floors above you in the building fucked up and now it's you getting fired. Yeah. And and so with me, there was never really a plan B because I could never really envisage it. I could hmm. never really figure out what plan B would consist of. Um, no, you're obviously doing what so, you're meant you know. to do, Mitch. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's <laughs> all, the, all, the cards yeah, are, all the cards have fallen in the right order. Well, the other thing I, the other thing I do, and I will get a plug in for this because I mean, it's, it's, I write science fiction books. Now, that is probably of all the things I do, the thing which was kind of a boyhood idol is I wanted to write science fiction books, and now I do. Uh, and I've got three out, and they're all on Amazon, Terror, Terror's World, and Terror's War. And I'm hoping, because I've actually got a bit of time off from touring after Edinburgh, because I'm doing Edinburgh in August, but then we're not touring that one till the new year. Uh-huh. The tour doesn't start till January, doesn't start right away. So in those last three months of the year, I'm hoping to maybe try and get my fourth book finished. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that is, you know. So, Amazing. I don't know. I I I just you know I I've 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 just got no bloody attention span. That's what it is. I've just no, I know. Keep, you know, keep things keep things moving. I know what you mean. And Australia, Australia is waiting for you, Mitch. They're waiting uh, for you. Well, okay. Well, we'll, we'll work on that. If anybody, if anybody in Australia listens, listen, produces, um, you know, we need some offers for for Mitch in Australia. <laughs> yeah, we need offers. That's what they'd be. Nay offence, but I'm not rocking up on the off chance. Indeed. You know indeed. what I mean? I'll, yeah. go, I'll, I'll hang out in Great Yarmouth with nothing to do for a couple of hours. I'm not hanging out in Australia with nothing to do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I can hear all the seagulls and everything. It's, it sound, sounds absolutely idyllic. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Mitch. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're very, very welcome. Thank you so You're much. You're very, very welcome. It's been, it's been fun. Mm-hmm.